Okay, so this is the second week of the Christmas series, which is uh, God Moved Into the Neighborhood. Love that little expression, comes out of the uh, Message Bible. Not a, not, a, uh, a, not a Bible that we use very often, to be honest. I mean, I occasionally dip into it in my devotional reading, but uh, personally prefer the New International Version, but you know, there's lots of good versions out there these days, but I've, I've sort of got used to that over the years, so we tend to use the NIV, or Necessary in Vineyard version. And, uh, and, uh, but, but it's good to look at other versions occasionally and, and compare them. And, and Wendy did a great job last week launching this series. And so I just want to say thank you to her. And as always, I always do these little plugs. If you missed it, you know, do, look at, do listen to the podcast or do watch the video cast. You will be blessed. Anyway, the little verse from the message that this whole series, the next three or four weeks are going to be centered on, is this. It's John chapter 1 verse 14, I think it might come up on the screen, and it says this from the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, from start to finish. What I've done with the preaching team, I think I might just move this one out of the way as well. What I've done with the preaching team is I've asked them to, for each one of us, to look at the same verse, this same passage, and to see how it speaks to you. I was struck when I was thinking about this a few months ago, uh, you know, about this whole thing. We saw the glory with our own eyes. And I said to the preaching team, what glory have you seen? What, 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 has, what, what has been revealed to you as you have, have uh, studied this passage? And I wanted them to share that. And so we all got quite excited about that thought. And so as I've been sharing this, the thing that arrested my, my attention to begin with was this whole business of moving into the neighborhood. And I've got the privilege of speaking in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that then, perhaps. But, but as I've been looking at this week, I thought I was going to do one thing. But in fact, I ended up just getting stuck on this, this thing, the glory. We saw the glory. And, you know, I've been a Christian a long time now, and I said to the Lord, I said, I just want to think about that. I just want to spend time in your presence just considering your glory. And, you know, honestly, I found myself struggling. I, I, I don't know whether I'm ashamed to admit it. It's just the reality. I, I just found myself thinking, I, I don't really know what that means. What is the glory? I mean, whenever I think about it, what I tend to do is think about reflected glory. And what do I mean by that? Well, Fliss and I, uh, as many of you know, in the last couple of years, we moved out to Edelsborough, and that's on the, Ailes, the Vale of Aylesbury. And to get there, we have to drive past Whipsonade Zoo, wave at the penguins as we go, and wasn't that a lovely penguin jumper that Richard uh, was wearing? Oh, I do want one of those. Uh, and uh, <laughs> wave at the penguins, and there's one poor old buffalo, and... Uh, we call him Sid, and uh, he sort of stands there in this field like that. And uh, then we drive down, but very often as, I, as we crest the hill there, if, if the day's good, there are the most glorious, glorious sunsets, the most glorious visions. But of course, what I'm looking at are shiny clouds. I'm looking at shiny clouds. I'm looking at reflected glory. If you just look at the sun, if it's possible, of course, it's dangerous to do so, in the sky, it's just a 
very bright disk. But when you start looking at things like rainbows, for example, and, and glorious sunsets, you know, the sun glinting golden on huge tumulus, cumulus clouds and stuff like that, then, you, then I always think of the glory of God. The other thing you know, that, that also reminds me of the glory of God are, are sunbursts, you know, cloudy skies and suddenly the sun breaks through and you can see these shafts of light. Is, am I alone in that or does that sort of speak to anybody here? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I think. And I thought, well, that's what I've always thought of. I've always, when I thought about the glory of God, I thought, wah, da, da, sunburst, sunburst, sunburst. And I realized all I'm talking about is reflected glory. I'm not talking about the glorious one. It's, it's all second hand. And so I reflected about that and I thought, Lord, I want to know more of you in your glory. I, I, I want to go on a journey, if you will, over Christmas and perhaps beyond, as long as it takes just so that I, if it were possible, might see more of your glory. You know, he says, we have seen your glory. So that's what I've been thinking of, and that's what I've been wrestling with. And uh, obviously, you know, one turns to the Scriptures, and of course, the moment you turn to the Scriptures and start trying to think about the glory of God, you know, you find yourself in the Psalms, you know, Psalm 98, uh, Psalm 19, you know, the, the whole host of scriptures which talk in terms of praise of God's glory. And so that gives you a bit of a hint. And then, of course, there's great New Testament passages as well. And we're going to read one now which begins to give us a glimpse of who this Jesus is, this God who moved into the neighborhood. Now, I, I, when I was talking to uh, our creative director about the, the image for this series, I said, I want a starlit night and I want a silhouette. I want it to look like the neighborhood. I, you know, that was important to me. And we actually, it was more difficult than, than we thought to get it right. And we got it in the end, and I love it. It's homely. It's cozy. It's where we, many of us live. And I wanted to convey that sense of God moving into the neighborhood. And I thought we began to get that with this image and other things that we have and will say. But then it's now this God, this glorious God. Who is he? What are we saying? So, you know, I'm running out of words to paint this picture. I actually said to the Lord this week, Lord, I wish I could find some fantastic music or, a, a, or I wish I could you know, find a great video. I wasted a lot of time looking for videos. We are going to see a video in a minute, which I think is pertinent, but, but I, there was something more. And all, I said, all I've got are these words, Lord. And so you have really got to come through big time if I'm going to move us on even an inch from where we are. So the first passage of Scripture we're just going to make reference to, we're going to look at two or three passages, and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to make them speak to you as they speak to me as we begin to consider... The glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus, the one who moves into the hood. And so the first passage then is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This shouldn't be unknown to you because it is a bit of a favorite. Make no apologies for that. For that. And so Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it'll come up on the screen. Or if you, if you uh, uh, have got a smart device, turn it up. Or if you need a Bible, if you haven't got a Bible, please ask at the welcome desk. But it says this, the Son, that's Jesus... The Son is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow, he is quite literally the lens through which creation has come about. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has premacy, but also he holds all things together. This is the Christ. This is Jesus, the babe in Bethlehem. Wow. And it goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He is above all things. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's the lens again. God was pleased through him to reconcile, to redeem, to make whole, to repair, to rescue. Many of us here know what it is to be rescued by God because we look back on the life that we were, we, we were caught up in and we look at what God is at work doing in us now. By making peace through his blood on the cross. Wonderful passage. Wonderful passage. And we, as we read passages like that and as we reflect upon them, and I encourage you to do that over Christmas, as we look for other passages, and you will not be disappointed, they're there to be found. As you consider those things, I, I found myself, my vision begins to expand. I don't know whether I'm grasping the glory of God yet, but perhaps I am. But my vision is, is expanded about who Christ is, who this Jesus is. And when, I've, when I'm beginning to get overwhelmed with that, and quite quickly my little mind, my little heart gets overwhelmed with it, I find myself asking the question, could it be? Or how could it possibly be? Could it be? Could it be true that this revelation of Jesus, this Jesus, this one who has supremacy, should be born as a baby and die for me. Oh my gosh. You've just blown my fuses. Got a little video that uh, kind of teases out this, this theme. Are we okay with that, Matt? We found it. Great. Let's run that video. Thank you. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Like father, like son. The Christ is the image of the invisible God. The disciples asked Jesus, just show us the father and then we'll be good. And he said, really? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. The word became flesh and blood. In churches, the land over, the world over at Christmas, in carol services, in Christingle services, 
in primary and secondary school services, that chapter one of John's gospel will be read again and again and again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's become so familiar. It's become perhaps over-familiar, like a well-worn tool. It's something, it's like an old friend. It embraces us. And yet, what is it that we embrace? It's explosive. I remember Chris Birch Evans, who usually sits over there. I think I told you he, he emptied his secondary school when he was a boy by honor they were doing a project on the Second World War, and he brought this shell that had been in the shed for forever to school to show everyone, and it was still a live shell. So they had to evacuate the school. This thing that they'd kicked around in the garden, he says he'd hit it with a hammer many times, trying to break open the brass casing. This thing that had been a doorstop this thing that had been polished up the brass and brought in at Christmas to put beside the fireplace, this thing <laughs> was an unexploded bomb. <laughs> Scripture sometimes, I think, is like an unexploded bomb. We become overly familiar with it and miss the explosive import of what it's communicating. The word became flesh and blood. And I have a question then as I've considered the glory and I'm trying to get my head around this thing. And the question is this, it's, it's a, a childish question and that's where I am in this, this journey. And, and simply I just say to God, but how? But how? How can God, this God that we're exploring and teasing out a little bit, and it is a tease, how can this God become that baby? How? Well, let's turn to the Scriptures again. The Scriptures chart our course, they inform us, they sometimes tease us, sometimes challenge us, sometimes comfort us, but let's turn to the Scriptures again. And this time, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Again, a, a friend and a familiar passage, but in this context, it begins to shed insight into profound truths. Christ Jesus, it says in verse 5, he was in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. Wendy, I, was, I loved what Wendy had to say last week, and I, as often happens when, when, when I hear great teachers you know, my mind runs on and I start making notes and scribbling things. And there was this little thing she said, you know, God had not spoken for 400 years. God had not spoken for 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There seemed to be silence in the land. 
And then the silence was broken with a baby's cry. Oh my gosh. The silence of God was broken with a baby's cry. Maybe you're living in that place that I, I preached a few months ago, the dark night of the soul. Maybe this is a time of questioning, a time of, of, of just unease, time of struggle. Maybe when you pray, your prayers seem to fall to the ground. Maybe the heaven feels like brass, as some of the old Pentecostals used to say. Well, why not? Rather than listening to a voice that shatters mountains and thunders on the storm, why not this Advent tide, this Christmas tide, listen out for a baby's cry? But how, I said, how is that, how do you do that? Well, if you'll forgive me, we're going to just take a little walk into Christian theology, because I'm not the first and probably won't be the last to ask, but how? How, how is, you know, baby, how is that possible? The Greek word for this, this uh, theological dialogue is the kenosis, kenosis. And it occurs in this passage where it says that, uh, you know, God... Uh, poured himself out, it, it, it actually says he empties himself. It's the empty, to, the kenosis means the, to empty oneself. I think that's helpful. Because what Christian theologians and Bible scholars over the years, and myself now, have come to the realization is that, that Jesus Christ, in order be, to become that baby, emptied himself of at least three very important godly dynamics. The first one, we're going to have them up on the screen. Clearly, he emptied himself of his omnipresence. I mean, I've got seven grandkids. When they come down, gosh, they are all present. <laughs> Do I know it? The idea of even one of them being half omnipresent is a terrifying thought to me. <laughs> they seem to be omnipresent anyway. And it's a cliche, I know, but the happiest moment for me, and I love my grandchildren to bits, I would take a bullet for them, is when I see the red lights of the car disappearing down the road. <laughs> but an omnipresent child? That cannot be. Jesus emptied himself, this supreme being, of his omnipresence. He became finite and contained, the kenosis. The second thing he divested himself was, was his omnipotence. God is all-powerful. As the scripture has said, and we've already read it, through Jesus, everything was created. But he divested himself, he emptied himself of his omnipotence to become a baby. Now, my youngest grandchild at the moment is three months old. 
And she's still at that age where pretty much we can do anything. She can be swaddled if you see, feel so inclined. She can be gathered up. And everybody oohs and ahs over them. Wait until she's 18 months. Am I right or am I right? You try gathering up an 18-month-year-old. They found that they can pull my beard and they get a very definite response from me. But at the moment, a child can be confined, loved and comforted, just like I'm just rejoicing in Philippa and Stamos. Just turn around and just put your hand up, Philippa. Just put your hand up. There, she's waving. This little baby, Anthony, we've been waiting for, what, well, three years or more. I've certainly been praying with him for three, three years. And how old is he now? Five weeks. There's joy in the house. Thank you, Jesus. He's at that age where you can gather him up and kiss him and cuddle him and smother him with kisses. I smother my, daughter, my granddaughter Eden with kisses and she just simply goes like that. If I, if I smother, smother my three-year-old grandson, Sonny, with kisses, he says, get off, Papa, get off. The supreme being, Jesus Christ, emptied himself of his omnipresence, of his omnipotence, and was confined as a child. The third thing is his omniscience, all-knowing. It's a godly attribute. God is all-knowing. He is wisdom personified. He is wisdom personified. The Hebrews almost deified the whole concept of wisdom. Just read the book of Proverbs. And they understood that God was all-knowing. Jesus confines himself. And, though, and although he operates at an extraordinary level, something that we call words of knowledge, he has spiritual insight into people. They seem to be, situ these moments are situational. He speaks to the woman at the well and says, the man you are, not, are living with at the moment is not your husband. In fact, you've had a number of husbands before this one. He knows that. How can you know that? But it's situational. He doesn't know everything about everything. He says to the man, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, who brought his son to the disciples and they could not cast the, de the demons out. He said to the man, he said, how long has he been like this? Jesus didn't know. What must it be like for an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present being to empty himself, to become as a baby, subject to his parents, as it says in the Scriptures? This is what theologians and Bible scholars still wrestle with, the, the answer to the how question. How, how can God move into the neighborhood in the form of a baby? There's a very poignant passage in John chapter 17. I think we've got that, haven't we, Matt? Just flip that up on the screen for me. And this is Jesus at the end of his ministry. He, it's his, it's a, we're eavesdropping on a prayer. And Jesus has completed his mission. 
there's just one thing left, and that's to go to the cross. He's come to earth. He's gathered around him those who are being saved, those whom God has called him to find in order to commission, to anoint, to teach, to train, to love, to embrace, and send out in the power of the Holy Spirit to birth the church. He has gathered those together He's spoken the word, he's taught, he's modeled, and now there's one thing left to do, and that's to go to the cross, to die for your sins and mine. This great God empties himself to become a child, to become a boy, to become a teenager, to become a young man, to become a man, solely to go to the cross, to die as God, because the one thing he does not divest himself of the one thing he does not empty himself of or pour out is his divinity. He is God. He may be in a baby's body and he may no longer be omnipotent, omniscient or omnipresent, but he does not divest himself of his divinity. It is God on that cross. Not just a hapless Galilean carpenter, it is God himself on that cross. Because only God can deal with the magnitude of my sin. And I'm not being arrogant here. It's the truth. Only God can deal with the sins of the world. Only God can rescue and redeem us. But in this poignant prayer, which we, we catch in John chapter 17, Jesus has prayed for his disciples. And Jesus says in John 17, one, chapter 5, he says this, Father, the hour has come. This is it, Lord. The moment we planned since the very, before the, the birth of time. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Interesting. Come back to that in just a moment. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory, glory I had with you before the world began. Now, Father, glorify me. My grandson, Sonny, at three is at an age where he'll say, let's go to the park. So we go to the park, we're halfway to the park, and you've had it all happen to you. He'll stop and he'll say, lift me up. And he wants to be carried. And he's a heavy little chap. And as much as Fliss and I do, we try and persuade him to walk, but no, that's it, done, you're carrying me. We have to lift him. The supreme being, Jesus Christ, emptied himself so completely in order to 
connect with you and I, to rescue you and I. That at the end of it all, he has to appeal to the Father and say, Father, lift me up. We're done. Lift me up. He cannot do it himself. This is real. It's not like, aha, now, kapoo, look at me. He has to be lifted up. Glorify me with the glory I had with you from the very beginning. And we get confirmation, of course, that Jesus is, that Father God does this again in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, in response to that poignant prayer. It says in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's give the Lord a clap. (laughs) Let's have the band back up. I invite you to not just go through the ready routines of of Christmas. My family are keen to start new traditions, so we started a new tradition yesterday. We traipsed around a muddy field near Sarat looking for Christmas trees, and we were all there, and I was promised hot chocolate and that it was going to be fun. The hot chocolate machine had broken, and I was completely caked in mud, and I said to Fliss before we went, had a quiet word with her, I said, Fliss, we're not buying a Christmas tree, we've got a perfectly good artificial one under the eaves. And guess what happened? They all mobbed up, bang, all sort of ganged up on me, and... Uh, So now we have this Christmas tree, which is waiting to be sorted out. It wasn't that bad. It was all right. (laughs) New traditions, new ways of doing Christmas. You know, uh, I was talking to a turkey farmer I talked to all sorts of interesting people. <laughs> I won't go into all the details, but, but you know, he said, it, it, you know, they do these turkeys, but he says, come Christmas Eve, they finish about 11 o'clock at night, he and his wife and all his family. They stagger into the farmhouse. It's a complete wreck. The, gods, the, the dogs want to go walk. They're, they're, it's a complete wreck. And they collapse in a heap. And Christmas for them is eating bags of crisps and watching the television. Ah. Folks, let's not go through the routines. Traditions are important. I love a bit of that. I am. I'm a bit of a softie. But let's not miss the extraordinary import of this season. That Christ, the supreme being, emptied himself in order to become a baby that could become a man that could take upon his shoulders the sins of the world. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.